I would like, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. Welcome one, welcome all, welcome you, and you, that's right, you back there in the corner. Welcome to Nine Cents. <laughs> Nine Cents is a satanic perspective of our modern world. I'm your host, Adam Campbell. It's uh, great to have you. It's August the 7th, and I've got a great show for you this week. First, I would just like to address that last week, I had briefly mentioned and this was too much to have said, but briefly mentioned that I may have a guest host next week. And then immediately after saying it aloud, realized that that was the downfall. And guess what? It's true. I don't have a guest host for you this week. So you're going to have to deal with just me once again <laughs> for an entire episode. Uh, I understand that... Well, let me. rather than saying I understand, I expect... Because I tire of hearing my voice. Uh, that others are going to as well. What I don't take into account is that you're only hearing me for an hour a week. And I have to live in my own head <laughs> forever. So you may not be as uh, pushing for a, a, a co-host as I have been at times. But with this understanding. And with the support of you listeners out there. I think I'm going to hang in there. <laughs> I'm just going to keep doing it because I don't really have an option. Um, yes, maybe next week, maybe the week after, maybe never. I might have someone else on the show with us to sort of talk and riff off of. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. And I, I got to be quite honest with you. I'm not sure I really want someone permanently. I wouldn't mind having like a guest host, but to I, I enjoy the freedom I have with this podcast. Um, by being in complete control. And I am, in my own small way, a megalomaniac, so I, I, I like having absolute power over what I produce. <laughs> you know, I, if, if I did share it, then I would have to take input. And whereas from the audience, I suggest input. I, I recommend getting input. But from uh, another co-host, I don't know. I, I might not be able to handle it. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, anyway, I, I do have a good show for you this week. And I've got a lot of good shows like lined up. I have a lot of things in the works here. You know, I, I try to work a few weeks out. So I have the shows roughly planned in my head of what I want. Um, I get guests as far out as I can. Right now I have it two weeks out. Um, I plan on... Like, I, I'm anticipating up to four weeks out or five weeks out of, of guest spots for Creature Feature. But, you know, obviously I can't always guarantee that. And sometimes, yeah, I mean, there are some uh, little white whales that I have on my list that I'd really love to talk to that have just not, you know, been able to hook up with yet, as it were. So, I do have a lot of things coming down the pipe for you. I'm very excited. It looks like, you know, this first year is going to be burning through some fantastic guests. And 
I just also want to you know drop a little note here for the listeners. Otherwise, you wouldn't be hearing this, right? Uh, I am putting out another RSS feed with just the interviews that I do on this show. Now, right now, I do have the first one out. And if you listen to this via an RSS feed rather than Radio Free Satan, um, I would go to the website, 9centspodcast.com, and you're actually going to have to put in... um, You know what? It it would probably be easier just to go to the Facebook page because I have the RSS linked there. And it's really sort of uh, a gift to those of you who are a little more active and who have liked the Facebook page. So if you haven't yet, get on over to Facebook. You don't have to be friends with me. <laughs> I And quite honestly, I've actually filtered through a lot of my Facebook friends, you know, air quotes there, uh, because I don't really interact. If I don't interact with you or you don't interact with me, then I delete. And that's just kind of how it is, you know. And i got to be quite honest, as I mentioned last week, I'm not that active on Facebook anyway. So, um, but I do reward those of you who are fans of the Nine Cents page. And I do that through uh, things like this RSS feed, this new one I set up. So essentially it's Nine Cents Interviews. And it's every guest I've ever had. I'm doing one a month. And I'm bringing you the interviews that I've done in a less edited version. Meaning, if... You know, when, when I first started doing these interviews, I was really trying to keep it down to like 15, 20 minutes. And some of the guests that I was interviewing went as long as like an hour and 20 minutes or more. So this format of an RSS feed, the interviews specifically, is a way for me to bring you the unedited version and sort of, you know, the revealed version of the guests. Uh, just Just another way for you to sort of connect with those people that I find interesting enough to have on the show and and to talk about their real life projects you know things that are inspiring not only because we're satanists but uh primarily because they're creative and very interesting individuals and they're not all satanists so keep that in mind let me also mention briefly that i did actually go on a really long hike uh, yesterday and i'm still feeling it it genuinely hurts like, I am, like, my calves feel like they're going to break. They're just busting uh, with pain. It's, <laughs> I just, I, you know, I, I go on these, these hikes out into the wilderness because I like being out there, uh, sort of exposed to the elements and just sort of connecting in my own way with nature. I, you know, I, I just find it incredibly important for me. And I enjoy spending the time with my family. I think it's a fantastic way for you to connect with your spouse and your children if you have any. Or if you have a spouse. It certainly is for me. So I went out there and our plan was there and back four hours. Which is a long time to hike. You know, I we were... I have a young daughter and so, you know, she can't really hike that long without assistance so you know we have a little carrier that she's usually on my back but sometimes she's on um, my wife's back as well and she my daughter is getting older which means she's getting heavier reaching that weight limit of that pack and it's like I'm back in the army rucking 12 miles again even though really it's only I mean the thing is it's it's on a mountain so you're going up freaking hill which makes it so much more difficult but really you know I'm only traveling like this time it took us about two and a half hours to get up to the lake uh 
and it's actually pretty intense the the last half of the hike so it really wore us out um and so we kind of stayed at a lake and hung out for a while and then on the way down that's when you're really starting to feel that full leg burn with the extra weight on your back so i was literally like like jogging down the hill with my my kid on my back just trying to get it over with and and get it done i yeah i'm you know, I'm, I'm a relatively tall individual, and so I like to take larger strides, and, you know, I just have to move, especially if I'm going downhill. Uh, so safe as I can, I, you know, I, I hug it down that hill. And now I'm so regretting it. Like, my legs are ridiculously sore. I'm just exhausted. We went for a bike ride around the block just a little bit ago, and, like, I feel like I'm going to die. If it wasn't for Bushmills right here calming me down, I might be sleeping just from pure exhaustion. And it doesn't really make sense in the Bushmills to keep me up, but it actually does it. The flavor is fantastic, so I enjoy it. So anyway, <laughs> let's... Um, and like I did say before, I do have a great show for you. Let's, let's run through what we're going to be talking about today. In The Devil's Advocate, I'm going to be talking about Epicureanists and what that exactly means as a Satanist. Uh, I, I've been finishing up the Satanic Scriptures by Peter H. Gilmore, um, our high priest, and it's actually full of a lot of really, really good uh, essays and, um, uh, I guess, just articles. But one in particular that addressed briefly Epicureanism as it relates to Satanism sort of inspired me. So we're going to be talking about that in The Devil's Advocate. In Infernal Informant, I have two really great articles here. UFO found on ocean floor, question mark. I'm a nut for space. I love the idea of aliens, and I'm going to give you my take on this article um, published by Space.com. I also have an article, Military Money on Chopping Block in Austere Time. In the creature feature, I'm going to be bringing to you, finally, it's been two weeks since I've conducted this interview, and I'm very excited for it, Coffin Rust. That's right, Reverend Bird is going to be on the show talking to us about all of his creative endeavors. And let me tell you something. This guy's awesome. His work is amazing. So pay attention. Go to coughandrust.com. Check it out. Buy some prints. Support a fantastic artist. In this arid wilderness of steel and stone, I'll raise up my voice that you may hear. To the east and to the west I beckon. To the north and to the south I'll show a sign proclaiming a death to the weakling, wealth to the strong. Can I get a hail Satan? I said, can I get a hail Satan? We are the Devil's Advocates. Welcome to the Devil's Advocate. As always, let me preface this segment by saying that I am a Satanist. I am a member of the Church of Satan, but I do not speak for the Church of Satan. That is all. Okay, friends, let's talk today about Epicureanism. And first, let's get it out of the way and define what this means. Now, I'm using Google here, Google Dictionary, and the definition here is an ancient school of philosophy founded in Athens by Epicurus. The school rejected determinism and advocated hedonism, pleasure as the highest good, but of a restrained kind. Mental pleasure was regarded more highly than physical, and the ultimate pleasure was held to be freedom from anxiety 
and mental pain, especially that arising from needless fear of death and of the gods. Now, how does this relate to Satanism? You often, in interviews, will hear Satanists say, we are not hedonists, we are Epicureanists. And aside from the definition just provided, that really doesn't say much unless you truly understand the philosophy behind Satanism. We thoroughly enjoy the guilty pleasures, those seven deadly sins. And as the nine satanic statements say, because they lead to some form of emotional or physical satisfaction, paraphrased. And, and what that means is that we do not deny ourselves our wants because we want them and we want to experience the joy that comes with them. Now, how is that different from hedonism? From just overindulgence? And, and that really right there explains it. We don't believe in overindulgence because that becomes compulsory action. So, regardless of your drug of choice, and when I say stuff like that, drug of choice, I'm meaning legal drug of choice, in case you didn't understand. Uh, whether it's tobacco, whether it's alcohol, whether it's sex, whether it's a good meal, or whether it's just spending time with someone you find fascinating enriching whatever it is there's a point where it consumes you where you're no longer in control of it that you start needing your next fix it's the point where addiction comes into play and satanism is about individual control you are your own god you do not bow to anyone, especially not an addiction. Compulsory behavior is natural, but it detracts from individual will. And that's what Satanists really herald as the greatest of all things, the strength and power of self. So that's why we say we are Epicureanists, not Hedonists. We believe in indulgence to the point that it does not consume us. And that's why we are against illegal drugs. Because illegal drugs have been determined, right or wrong, good or bad, because they are more influencing, they, they, they bring about more compulsory behavior than legal substances. Now, I say that, <laughs> I, I tend to do this a lot where I make a statement and then I kind of backtrack a little bit and, and define a course here. I'm going to do that here. So I say that, but even tobacco and alcohol use, even sex, uh, even just being around someone in company, that can easily, depending on your individual biological and chemical makeup, be just as addictive and just as compulsory. So, whether it's legal or not, 
You always have to keep yourself in check. Now, as stated many times on this show, the Church of Satan does not condone illegal drug use or illegal activity at all. So let's maintain our framework here around legal substances. I have mentioned many times that I come from an alcoholic background. My, my, my father died of it. I had um, my grandfather died of uh, nicotine um, from cancer developed through smoking. So it wasn't really nicotine. It was the chemicals that come with it. Um, so, you know, addiction is in my blood. So I always have to be careful with that. Uh, I say in my blood, but I've defined what I really mean before. <laughs> so I'm not going to go into that. I'm not going to backtrack twice in this segment. Uh, so I always have to be careful with where I go with my individual indulgences. And I actually, of all of them, of all of them, because I used to smoke and I quit, I drink, I'm a home brewer, uh, but I, I maintain in my opinion, uh, a healthy and uh, non-overindulgent abuse of it. <laughs> and I say abuse because it really is a drug, and whenever you use a drug, you're really just abusing it. Uh, yeah, at least at some level, in my opinion. Sex. Sex is the number one addiction for me. It always has been, and it always will be. And I have to always keep myself in check. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's really hard. And it becomes a strain on a relationship, really. When you are wanting so much more than some people are comfortable with. So, you know, that's, that's my vice that I always have to sort of keep in check. And I suppose on the scale of vices, it's really on the safest, happiest end. <laughs> I mean, I have a hard time admitting it's a problem, uh, even though I, I recognize signs and symptoms that define it as a problem. You know, I'm, I'm able to like take a step back and observe myself. Um, but when you hear it from your partner, then you know that it's it's an issue that you you have to work out. Um, so, you know, that's, that's sort of the line that I wanted to address between what Satanism, what Satanism welcomes. Uh, and that sort of also, you know, falls into line with our whole take on legal versus illegal activity. Because it, it's fine, whatever indulgence you have, until it becomes a compulsion or until it becomes a problem to someone else. You know, we, we often preach responsibility to the responsible. And that means that whatever you do in life, if it reflects on someone else's will, without their consent, well, it's a problem. And behavior, compulsory behavior, whether you want to or not, will affect somebody else's will. So you always have to be careful about that. You always have to keep it in the back of your mind. So we embrace indulgence. We embrace it, but on an Epicurean level, not on an addictive, compulsory level. That's what it means. And really, that's all I wanted to talk about, Epicureanism in this devil's advocate. It is very much a satanic ideal. It is very much an identifier. It's very different from those Islamic Judeo-Christian beliefs 
which I think sets us apart dramatically in a good way. Um, rather than denying, and this is you know one of those tenets that draws people to Satanism. Certainly, it's, it's one of the ones that I identified that I absolutely initially understood. You know what I mean? It's that idea of, of yes, do as thou wilt shall be the whole of the law until it affects someone else. A uh, little Crowley reference there. All right, so let's go ahead and move on into uh, Infernal Informant. I've got a couple of good articles here for you. Warriors of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, all in the Infernal Informant. All right, in this Infernal Informant, we're going to start with a Space.com article. UFO found on ocean floor, and this is by Benjamin Radford, Life's Little Mysteries contributor, on 29 July 2011. This was a little old. An ocean explorer team led by Swedish researcher Peter Lindbergh has found what some are suggesting is a crashed flying saucer. Lindbergh's team, which has had success in the past recovering sunken ships and cargo, was using a sonar to look for the century-old wreck of a ship that went down carrying several cases of super-rare champagne. Instead, the team discovered what it claims is a mysterious round object that might, or might not, be extraterrestrial. Lindbergh explained to local media that his crew discovered on the 300-foot-deep ocean floor between Finland and Sweden, quote, a large circle about 60 feet in diameter. You see a lot of weird stuff in this job, but during my 18 years as a professional, I've never seen anything like this. The shape is completely round, end quote. Adding to the mystery... At the bottom of the Gulf of Bothnia, Lindbergh said he saw evidence of scars or marks disturbing the environment nearby, suggesting the object somehow moved across the ocean floor to where his team found it. It's not clear what to make of this report or the video of the sonar scan that shows the object, but Swedish tabloids and internet UFO buffs have had a field day. Some suggest the object is a flying saucer of extraterrestrial origin, and the seafloor scars were dug up when it crashed. Though of all the things that might create a round sonar signature, that seems to be among the most outlandish. It might be a natural feature formation, or possibly a sunken round man-made object. Lindbergh's claim that the object is perfectly round may or may not be accurate, while it looks round from the information so far, the resolution of the sonar image was not high enough to verify that it is indeed round, and while the lines that appear to be leading to or from the feature may suggest some sort of movement, it's also possible they have nothing to do with the object. Lindbergh himself did not offer an extraterrestrial origin, though he did speculate it might be a new Stonehenge. This is not the first time a sunken object has been presented as the solution to a mystery. Take, for example, the famous underwater mystery of the Bimini Road, a rock formation in the Caribbean 
near the Bahamas that resembles a road or wall. Many New Agers and conspiracy theorists claim that the rocks are too perfectly shaped to be natural, and either were made by an unknown civilization or are possibly a relic from the lost city of Atlantis. In fact, geologists have identified the blocks as unusually shaped but perfectly natural weathered beach rock. It's also worth noting that UFOs may not be saucer-shaped. The famous flying saucer description of the first UFO has since been revealed as a reporting error. Lindbergh said his team has neither the interest or the resources to further investigate the anomaly. Deep ocean research is time-consuming and expensive. If the object were indeed a flying saucer, recovering it could potentially be worth millions or billions of dollars. If it's a natural formation, on the other hand, it would probably be a waste of time and money. And that's the article. And before I say anything, I want to start by saying this. That last sentence, I think, is bullshit. If it's a natural formation, on the other hand, it would probably be a waste of time and money. Let me define why I think that's bullshit, and in doing so, explain what I think that this more likely than not is. In our human history, sea levels have varied by thousands of feet, and we have record of this. So it's not an absurd idea. Now, this noted that it was on a 300-foot deep ocean floor between Finland and Sweden. So it's not unheard of, it's not insane to think that at some point in our history, in, in, in the history of this world that we live in, in human civilized history, in an ice age past, that that was above water. And that this circular formation is very much man-made. And Lindbergh himself mentioned that it could very well have been another Stonehenge. And I think he's more right than this alien idea. Now, I'm going to be pulling on a couple things here to draw my conclusion. But let's address that crash site signature of debris that's disturbed the environment nearby. And let's just say there are streams in the water, gulf streams, just like there are streams in the air, of currents, right? So is it insane to think that there may be a current nearby pushing sand against this man-made structure, partially bearing it, but also leading debris away from it. So rather than looking at it as if it's leading to the object, it's actually leading away from it due to currents. And this is actually another one of those things, you know, in, in the desert, there's a lot of um, Discovery Channel or PBS shows talking about moving rocks in the desert. And really all it is, is airstreams pushing sand around rocks, you know, causing trails behind them. Uh, I, I think this is exactly the same thing. And, you know, this speaks to a larger, a larger statement that I, I make quite often when confronted with things like this, or the idea that we have to have been settled by astronauts from another world or alien people. We shortcut human ingenuity quite a bit, I think. 
we have gone down a road of technology in our modern civilizations. I genuinely don't think that that's the only way to, oh, let's say, create and communicate as human beings. That's the way we've developed, but that's not all the, always the way that it has to be, I don't think. And this is all speculation, just personal theories here. Um, I think there have been, and there's been proof that the world has been mapped thousands of years before the Spanish, you know, came over. Even the Vikings. Uh, the Prairies map, for example. Um, so, you know, th th there are civilizations of mankind lost. Because perhaps they didn't keep histories like we do. Perhaps um, they didn't go down that technological route that we have. So, in thousands of years after we've been destroyed, we're still going to have structures and plastics to define our existence here. But what if there's been civilizations that didn't center around that? That were more natural influenced? Is it insane to think that one of those civilizations created this structure? I mean, it was those civilizations that created the pyramids. It was those civilizations that created Easter Island statues. Um, you know, mankind has been able to do some amazing things with little to no technology as we understand it. But that doesn't mean that we should just leap out to insane theories as gods or aliens. You know, if you really believe that we are our own gods, if you really believe that, then I think at some level, you have to believe in the human spirit of creation, destruction, ingenuity, and passion. And understanding those things, I think, sheds light into the little mysteries like this. Now, I say this because... I want to believe that UFOs come. I love the idea of... Actually, I have these reoccurring dreams about uh, alien invasions. And I think it's just because I, I'm sort of a sci-fi fantasy freak. But I, I like the idea of an apocalyptic Earth and fighting to survive. I think we have it too easy as human beings. Don't get me wrong, I'm enjoying it while we can. But I think we have it too easy, you know, on a grand scheme of things. Um... I like the idea of aliens. I genuinely do. But I don't think that it would be such a leap of the imagination if it happened as much as people said it did. I think NASA may have carte blanche fact and admitted to it being out there. I don't believe in the, the thick, deep conspiracies I think there are conspiracies, but I don't, th I don't, you know, necessarily this alien one. I don't, I don't really believe in. So, the covering up of aliens. Uh, I just, I, I think we need to give ourselves a little bit more credit as as a human species. And things like this, it's all speculation. And even the article dismisses the idea of it being aliens in favor of human creation. And I think that's, you know, maybe the road that we should focus on more until we can prove otherwise.
but not even Lindbergh and his team want to do that. And if he really thought it was aliens, I guarantee he would want to because of the financial rewards. But all of that going to say that it that last line of the the um the article here uh saying that it would be a waste of time and money. Finding out about our human histories is never a waste of time or money. And yes, it may be expensive, and yes, it may waste a lot of people's time. Waste being a loose term. It's all opinion. It's all perspective. If we can find another lost civilization, I don't mean fantastical, I just mean another civilization that existed when sea levels were lower, why wouldn't we want to inform ourselves about that? That's our history. That's where we come from. Respect that. Don't dismiss it. That's my opinion. And it's easy to say that when I'm not fronting the money. <laughs> you know? I mean, uh, Anyway, I, I kind of went long on that. Let's go ahead and move over to the second article here. And this one is Military Money on Chopping Block. Austere time. Okay, this is ABC News Politics, uh, picked up from the Associated Press by Donna Casada and Lolita... Seriously? <laughs> Lolita C. Baldor. Uh, August 4th, 2011. The Pentagon got nearly everything it asked for during a decade of two wars shadowed by the September 11th terrorist attacks and the rise of Al-Qaeda. No more. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Admiral Mike Mullen acknowledged that reality Thursday saying the military is resigned to budget cuts of around $350 billion over a decade to meet the public clamor for reducing the nation's debt. But they quickly warned that more than doubling those cuts along the lines of the doomsday mechanism spelled out in the new debt limit law would undermine the military. If it happened, and, quoting the article here, God willing, that would not be the case. But if it did happen... It would result in a further round of very dangerous cuts across the board. Defense cuts that I believe would do real damage to our security, our troops and their families, and our military's ability to protect the nation. Panetta told reporters at his first Pentagon news conference. Mullen, who has said repeatedly that the debt is the greatest national security threat, said any cut on that order jeopardizes our ability to deal with the other very real and very serious threats we face around the world. Reflecting the widespread demand for fiscal austerity, the compromise debt deal struck by President Barack Obama and congressional leaders this week will slice $350 billion from projected military spending over the next 10 years, and it leaves open the possibility of more than $500 billion in additional reductions. Defense spending, which has nearly doubled in the last decade, is no longer untouchable in Washington. Tea Partiers and fierce fiscal conservatives in Congress are more willing to include Pentagon dollars in their mix of budget cuts, despite opposition from veteran defense hawks. The death of Osama bin Laden, the diminished role of al-Qaeda, and the winding down of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have prompted some lawmakers to question the need for such robust military spending. Among the things that could be on the block, a troubled new jet fighter, expansive plans to modernize the nation's nuclear arsenal, and perhaps some of the gold-plated benefits now guaranteed 
to military retirees. I think programs that can't meet schedule, that can't meet cost requirements, are very much in jeopardy, and will be very much under scrutiny, Mullen said. The prospect of nearly one trillion in cuts unnerves military leaders, troubles lawmakers protective of the Pentagon, and has touched off scramble in the defense industry as contractors look to spare their multi-billion dollar weapons programs. In sounding an alarm, Panetta is pressuring Democrats and Republicans to consider making concessions on their core priorities. Entitlement programs such as Medicare and Social Security, defended by Democrats, and increases in tax resisted by Republicans before taking a sharper knife to defense. The former Democratic congressman and budget chief in the Clinton administration delivered a clear message to leaders of both parties. You cannot deal with the size deficits that this country is confronting by simply cutting the discretionary side of the budget, said Panetta. If you're going to deal with those size deficits, you've got to look at the mandatory size of the budget, which is two-thirds of the federal budget, and you also have to look at revenues as part of that answer. Just back from a trip to Iraq and Afghanistan, Mullen faced repeated questions from troops worried that their pay and benefits would be cut. Quote, our men and women downrange have enough to worry about just getting the job done, Mullen said Thursday. They shouldn't also be concerned about whether or not they will be paid to do that job, or whether or not their families will continue to get their support they need during long absences. Sitting side by side with Panetta at the Pentagon, Mullen pointed out that the military has a crowded must-do list. Wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, support for the NATO-led operation in Libya, disaster relief missions in Haiti and Japan, and defense of national interests. Clearly reflecting the frustration building around the Pentagon and across the military, the defense leaders made it clear that while they will find the nearly $400 billion in initial savings required, that's where they draw the line. Military leaders think that they are already carrying their fair share of the cost-cutting burden, while still being able to respond to terrorist threats, nuclear-armed rogue nations, and other conflicts. Defense budgets, not including the cost of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, have jumped since 9-11 from just over $370 billion in the late 90s to around $550 billion today. In the political clamor to slash the deficit, Obama this past spring called for $400 billion in defense cuts over 12 years, and former Defense Secretary Robert Gates launched a comprehensive review of the military's strategy and capabilities. That review could be completed by the end of the summer. Setting the agenda now is the debt limit deal to cut more than $2 trillion from federal spending over a decade. In the initial phase, all security spending, money for defense, homeland security, veterans, foreign aid, and intelligence, will be cut from the current level of $687 billion this year to $683 billion in the next year's budget. Defense would take a share of that $4 billion reduction. The next step is the unknown that Panetta fears. A 12-member House-Senate committee must propose up to $1.5 trillion more in government-wide cuts over a decade, and do so by November 23rd. If the committee deadlocks or, if Congress rejects its recommendation, the Obama administration will be required to impose automatic, across-the-board spending cuts of up to $1.2 trillion, with half coming from defense. The budget proposals provide no specifics, but several programs are often mentioned as possible targets. Ten years in, the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, a multi-billion dollar aircraft, has been plagued by cost overruns and delays. The cost of buying more than 2,400 of the next generation aircraft for the Air Force, Navy, and Marine Corps has jumped from $233 billion to $385 billion. Recent estimates say the entire program could exceed $1 trillion over 50 years. 
Another potential target is the Medium Extended Air Defense System, or MEADS, a multinational missile defense program with Italy and Germany. The Pentagon said earlier this year it would not implement the program, though research will continue for another two years at a cost of more than $800 million. Among the other targets are the numbers of ships and submarines the Pentagon buys. One of the most costly programs for the Defense Department is its health care coverage for some 10 million active duty personnel, retirees, reservists, and their families. The cost has jumped from $19 billion in 2001 to $53 billion. Obama proposed increasing the fees for working age retirees in the decade-old health program known as TRICARE, but has encountered resistance from lawmakers and various associations for military retirees. Debt limit negotiators looked at changes in the program for possible savings, and the special bipartisan committee is likely to consider the program in its calculations. Mullen noted that while the Army and Marine Corps have grown over the past 10 years, those numbers will be reduced in the next several years. The Army already is on pace to drop from 570,000 to about 520,000, and the Marines will cut about 15,000 from their current total of about 202,000. Thanks for sitting through that. That was uh, a bit of a long article, but I think it was important to, because there's a couple things in here I thought were interesting and, and relevant in, in our current climate, our current political climate here, and economic climate, actually. This idea that these cuts are coming without any increase in revenue. Now, I agree the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter should be scrapped. And yes, it sucks that all of that money has been dumped into it, but if it's continuing to be a problem... We cannot afford to continue to develop something. It's literally a money pit. The Meads system, we already have our own national defense system. I think the Meads, where it would be strategically nice, is something we cannot afford right now. I think our involvement in Iraq, flawed as it was going in, we need to cut it. Get the fuck out of Iraq. Seriously. We've been there way too long. We do not need people there anymore. Let the Iraqis deal themselves. We went in there. We shouldn't have. We ousted a potential threat. Really wasn't a threat. We shouldn't have. We need to get out of there. We need to focus on ourselves. We need to be a little bit more selfish. And yes, I understand on a national scale, we are doing that because we're selfish. But we can't afford it without tax increases. We are at a point where we are paying less taxes than ever. Certainly, World War I era. So you can't tell me that we're paying too much. We have to increase taxes. And yes, I think significantly we need to empty holes in the tax code so these corporations don't get off paying no taxes like they are. We need to cut the holes so they don't get tax incentives for sending jobs overseas. We need to raise tax cuts on those in this country that can afford them, i.e. 250000 and above in take-home income, personal income. We need to eliminate tax refunds. You should not be making money on your taxes. I, we all have to freaking suffer here if we want to maintain the lifestyle that we're used to. Everyone. If we reduce our involvement in foreign... If we reduce our involvement, not only in foreign aid, but ousting other leaders because we don't happen to like them at the moment, because it's not popular at the moment, if we stop throwing money at other countries that stab us in the back, then maybe, after revenue increases, we can shrink the debt. Now, no one is seriously considering getting rid of the debt. 
because that's where the power of our money comes from. That's how we've always had it. And if you don't understand that idea, you probably should educate yourself about money being debt. You know, there's no, there, there is no such thing as we have X amount of product equaling and backing X amount of money. It's all emotion and numbers. It's all made up. And it's important to understand that. Uh, so we need to, uh, we really need to take a look at this because it's getting ridiculous. And you know what? I think that's going to stop it for this Infernal Informant. Uh, I'm going to take a very, very short break and we're going to dive right into Creature Feature. See you on the other side. The Satanic Scriptures hands down the wit, wisdom, and diabolical perspective of the Church of Satan's High Priest, Magus Peter H. Gilmore. These essays, articles, and diatribes have been collected from over 20 years of the High Priest's writings for his Infernal Cabal, some first issued in the pages of publications available only to insiders. From the magic of toys to techniques of time travel, Magus Gilmore leads the reader down a left-hand path where few will find what they expect. Magus Gilmore reveals principles of satanic ritual in a frank discussion of forbidden rites. What is a satanic funeral? How do Satanists marry? Find out now, as these unholy ceremonies have never been disclosed outside of the Church of Satan's hellish hierarchy. Here is the philosophy for those bold enough to be their own gods or devils. Visit thesatanicscriptures.com for more information. Released by Scapegoat Publishing. Available in paperback form from major booksellers and independents nationwide. You know, dogs are different than cats. And hey, what if Jack Nicholson were... Hey, what if We Are the World was sung by the cast of Friends? I think it might go something like this. Hi, everyone. I'm Jay Leno. Anyone remember when I was funny? Eat Doritos. Ladies and gentlemen, Dane Cook. Are you fed up with comedy that's made for the masses? Sick of stand-up comedian hacks with the same old routines that you've heard a thousand times before? Equally tired of shock jocks who equate loudness with laughter? Hello, my name is Reverend Bill M., creator and host of The Devil's Mischief, a show where every week I present a new hour of comedy and novelty of devilish proportions. So tune in to The Devil's Mischief. Visit devilsmischief.com or radiofreesatan.com to download the latest podcast. The Devil's Mischief. Carnal comedy clips and netherworld novelty numbers simply not made for the masses. The sky is dark, moon piercing the night. Through the trees, the damsel in distress comes, breaking through the underbrush. Fear painted on her face. The darkness hunting her is near. She swamp water slowing her escape. The creature nears, the damsel turns, hands rising to her sides as a lastest effort to thrust the creature back. Welcome to Creature Feature. Welcome to another Creature Feature. Today, I have a very special guest, Reverend Bird from Coffin Rust. Now, if you're unfamiliar with CoffinRust.com, I suggest, while you're listening to this, navigate over there and check it out. Unless, of course, you listen to it in the car, in which case, pull over, then navigate and listen to it. And either way, Reverend Bird, how are you? Thank you for joining me. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Adam. Yeah, this is uh, actually really exciting for me. I've been paying attention to your work for quite some time and uh it's just one of those things where i like to consider myself an artist but when compared to someone of your caliber it's just not at all so 
<laughs> I always love sort of, uh, you know, talking to people that are uh, better than me and I can maybe glean a little inspiration or uh, learn a little bit from, you know, how they how they approach their art and stuff. So I'm, I'm actually really excited for this interview. Well, thank you so much. Before we start talking about your work specifically, can we maybe uh, get a glimpse of uh, the wizard uh, behind the curtains? Can you tell me a little bit about the man behind Coffin Rust? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in Alabama. I make a living doing what I love. I'm married to a beautiful and talented Church of Satan witch and photographer, and we are the proud and dutiful servants to our five cats. <laughs> I guess that sums it up. <laughs> That's how it ends up, too. That's great. Um, so you, you're, you're in the priesthood. When did you first realize you were a Satanist? Uh, it was in 1999. Um, I been an atheist um, at that point, but I began to explore the occult uh, simply to incorporate some of the imagery into my work. Um, I didn't take any of it seriously, but um, so then New Orleans and in one of the city's many occult shops, when I happened on this little six ninety nine paperback, it was cheap, so I figured why not? I didn't think too much of it. I had bought several books for reference and such along with it. Yeah. And um, I started reading it in the car, actually, just kind of flipping through it, and it really just piqued my interest. So when I got home that night, I uh, uh, started reading it, and I finished it that same night. And then I quickly started collecting Dr. LeVay's other books, as well as Magister Barton's, and uh, reading everything I could on the Church of Satan's website. And... Um, yeah, I just I've heard other Satanists describe reading the book as, you know, reading their own words on paper, and that's exactly the same as it was with me. So, oh uh, yeah. So, if, if you don't mind me asking, what prompted you from just reading it and um, seeing yourself in it, and just uh, recognizing yourself as a Satanist to making that leap and joining the organization? Um, I. I've never been a joiner, so, you know, I was an only child, so I just kind of grew up doing things on my own, and whenever I was made to join things like Boy Scouts or whatever, I just hated that group teamwork mentality where, you know, other people are rewarded for good things you did while you're punished for lousy things they did, or alternatively, I hated uh, being, I didn't feel comfortable getting credit for good things other people did. So what struck a chord with me about the Church of Satan was that it didn't proselytize. It didn't seem, it seemed, you know, indifferent as to whether I joined or not. Um, And it also championed things like individuality and personal responsibility and things like that, that the the very things that kind of, you know, made me not want to join groups. Um, So after spending a few years reading all the material I could get my hands on, um, I joined as a registered member in 2003, and it was probably a year or so later I sent in my active application. So let, let's go ahead and uh, transition over into your artwork. When did you start to really work and refine your work, your, your art? Uh, I've been drawing as long as I can remember. Um, I mean, it's since I could hold a crayon, basically. It's just, it was something I could do by myself. I could create this whole world. That was all mine. I could have certain creatures in it. I could, you know, 
just explore this whole universe that was right there on my paper with my pencil or crayon. So it was just something I was always uh, fond of doing. And I started actually taking some of my first commissions in the third grade. Uh, Kids would want me to draw Ninja Turtles or whatever. (laughs) So, you know, for like a quarter, I'd uh, whip up Donatello or Michelangelo or somebody. And, um, you know, I just, it was just something I was always, uh, had a natural inclination to do. And I guess it just naturally uh, evolved over time. And of course, I'm still evolving. I'm still trying to get to some point that I'll probably never achieve. But as long as I'm moving in the you know forward direction, then I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with that. So. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. You have to continually evolve your 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 processes and your your talents. Um, what one thing I find about people is that they, and this is just maybe my perception of it. Some people like to focus on one medium and then call that theirs rather than experimenting with others. And I know that you experiment outside of, let's say, painting, for example. You, mm-hmm. you sort of delve into a lot of different medium. Do you think that's important as an artist? I do. Um, you know, if you're really particularly good at a certain medium, and maybe that makes you money, and it's kind of what you're known for, that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, But it's good to be well-rounded, especially if you have a client or maybe a boss who knows they can rely on you to step outside of your comfort zone and, you know, deliver something that's uh, of quality that maybe you're not used to working with. uh, That's all the better. So the more you can learn, the more you can experiment, um, there's definitely no harm in that. It's... You know, it'll only benefit you down the line. In fact, when I first I went to a community college right after high school, and the only major they really had for art was graphic design. And I really wasn't too interested in it, but I went ahead and took it. And I learned, you know, some pretty good stuff that has since, in recent years, paid off uh, doing graphic design for a DVD cover and yeah. Uh, stuff for my website, even personal things. Um, and it also paid off when I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design and majored in sequential art because the whole comic page is basically a big, um, you know, art in, un, un unto itself. It's, um, you know, you, you need to have this nice flow to it. Everything needs to mesh well together. And graphic, you know, these graphic design classes I had taken that I didn't have any interest in yeah. and that I really uh, wasn't too interested in at all, I uh, ended up using um, later on down the road. So it, it just, you, it's good to uh, just any chance you get, any opportunity that comes along, just, you know, take advantage of it. So. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I think every artist should do is at least have you know your first couple of courses in in design, and only because it, it teaches you um, just some some core principles of of dominance and and focus and uh, oh, yeah. you know th- what draws the eye. Um, yeah, and I think that is you know for the most part. For, for commercial pieces it is incredibly important. Oh, absolutely. Um, cool. So uh, what actually inspires your artwork? Um, well, when I was a kid, the 
one of the biggest artistic influences would be Stephen Gamble and his just beautifully terrifying work in the mm-hmm. Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark series. Uh, I would just stare at those for hours when I was a kid, and um, they're just mind-blowing, and they still are. Also, uh, probably growing up, I, uh, I attended a lot of funerals. Um, and at the time, it seemed like, well, this is something everybody does. But, you know, as I talked to other people about it, they're like, how many have you been to? And I honestly don't remember. It, maybe like 20 by the time I was in my pre-teens. Whoa. Um, yeah, just it was either family members or friends of the family. Like, we just had this compulsion. We go, oh, somebody died. We got to go to the funeral on the way. Yeah. And uh, so just death was kind of this natural it just seemed more natural to me, I guess. And I enjoyed incorporating that into my art. Um, I, I would frequently draw skeletons and caskets and actually still have a drawing I did of my grandfather's funeral, you know, with the casket laid out and everything. Wow. I was probably five or six years old. Um, <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people were probably like, yeah, that kid's a little weird, but, um, <laughs> To me, to see it just seemed almost like this natural thing, mm-hmm. but it also was even at an early age was kind of a reminder to live your life as fully as you can because you never know when you're going to end up in that box. And so, you know, these were kind of lessons that I would incorporate into my work, uh, even from an early age. So, you know, now that I've gotten older, I'm I'm just I'm still enthralled by skeletons and yeah. <laughs> zombies and all that kind of stuff. That's great. Did that have, do you think, any psychological component to it, going to that many funerals as a kid? Or or were you just sort of disconnected from it and just sort of going through the motion? It, it was on a case-by-case basis. So yeah. If someone was close to me, you know, I'd be upset. But if, they, if I didn't really know them at all, it was more just a fascination. Um, I could, you know, go and see this dead body in a box. It was just kind of, you know, a unique thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. And, um, and of course, the food was always wonderful at the wakes. And nice. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I guess, but like I said, it just made me really appreciate life, even at an early age when I guess probably most kids don't really think about it that deeply. And it's not that I was getting super philosophical about it. Hmm. It's just that, I knew that around any corner you could meet your death. And so I was always very cautious as a kid. I never really, you know, I didn't break any bones. I didn't do any crazy stunts on my dirt bike or anything like that. I was (laughs) cautious. And I guess that's carried over to adulthood too, to a degree. That's awesome. I'm uh, actually looking um, through your your paintings here um, on your website, coffinrust.com. And I had come across one called Dower, mm-hmm. which um, it says it's uh, acrylic on canvas. And it, I guess to describe for the listeners, um, it looks like a almost completely com- decomposed um, corpse, sort of a portrait. So it's a bust uh, from the side. Um, it still looks like there could be some flesh on it if it was a zombie. I was wondering if maybe you could tell me a little bit about this, if... Really, if if there's anything you know personal about it at all, yeah, it it started off something as a <clears throat> just another painting exercise. I had been painting for a little while. Uh, by that point, I 
I went to college for sequential art, comic books and stuff like that, but mm-hmm. I never took a painting class, so I'm totally self-taught as a painter. And I'd been painting for a while at that point, experimenting, and Dower was the first, like, obviously evolutionary step. You know, the piece I'd done before that looked, you know, years away from where Dower looked. And you know, hopefully nowadays I'm doing stuff that looks years away from where Dower yeah. uh, was. So, um, so I was really happy with that piece. It actually started out a little bigger, and because it was just basically an experiment, um, I didn't really like how some of it looked. So I repainted over it a little bit and touched it up and just kind of really developed, I guess, my. Um, my confidence in, in acrylics with that piece. Um, so, it, so it's kind of special to me for that reason. It actually sold recently at um, a gallery in Des Moines, Iowa called Finders Creepers. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, and um, so I was, I was really happy about that. It's you know, got a nice home. Somebody can enjoy it. So that, that always makes me feel real good. Uh, Finders Creepers has a few of my paintings and prints, and they probably have some out of print copies of my book, The Coffinerous Conspectus, I had out a few years ago. So if anybody would like to check that out, I'd strongly recommend uh, visiting their website, finderscreepers.com. I'm going to be checking that out. Hell yeah. So do you have um, prints of, of your, your canvas work? I do for, for most of them. Okay. Um, I do have a shop on my website, but it's, it's a little dated right now. Um, I haven't really added much to it lately. Uh, but if anyone's interested in a particular piece that they'd like to print of, I'm sure I could make it. So um, the best thing to do is just email and ask. Very nice. Uh, I would like to talk about a couple other pieces if we could here. One that really stuck out for me, um, for some obvious and not obvious reasons, is uh, your graphite piece called Self-Pleasure. So this was graphite on Bristol board. And... Um, what I really liked was that you have fantastic, and I mean, just personally, I, I really like sketch. I, I think it is the original and purest form of, of, of art, you know, the beginning of everything that's great out there. It's, it's through the sketch. Oh, sure. Sort of that process has always attracted me more, sometimes more than finished pieces, to be honest. Um, and, and I really like that. I mean, you can see your your sketch process in this piece. You can see how you refined it with with some hard lines. But what I found really interesting is that you just hinted at facial features, um, really just you know really basic. Um, so your focus on this piece is really the sexuality and and uh, just the the process that she is going through. Can you maybe tell me? What what was it about this piece that you were trying to speak to, or or why did you leave the the person so vague and the the flesh so so out there so so profound? Well, I guess it could just speak to anybody, um, and the kind of gestural, energetic feel of it, you know, uh, evokes more of the the what's going on than it does the person too. And the the interesting thing about this piece is the amount of emails, positive emails I've gotten from women <clears throat> who really enjoy it. Um, in fact, I'd probably say is uh, I get 
the most emails for that piece out of all the graphite stuff. And, um, and that's really rewarding because I guess it speaks on a very just carnal level. Um, and it, it's, it's not anyone specific, so it could apply to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's just, it was just a fun piece to make. And um, I, I was just trying to, I guess, capture the, the essence of pure sexuality, especially, you know, uh, selfish sexuality. Yeah, um, well, I think yeah. you did. I think you absolutely did. It's it's a great great piece. I oh, appreciate it. Um, there's another one here that I don't know why, but it kind of spoke to me when I was reviewing uh, some of your ink pieces, and it was brewed over, and this is mm-hmm. ink on Bristol board, and it's this vague outline of a form, but capping it is this. I don't know, monstrous or horrific face with this hair sweeping across and the splattering of ink for texture behind it. And it reminds me a little bit of something that maybe Clive Barker would do, um, but it is, I, I don't know, there's like this emotion where the, the hair, I, and I'm assuming it's hair, may not even mm-hmm. be hair, it may just be like this this force coming from the face or, or this this power or... Maybe could you tell me a little bit about that and, and what provoked you to, to create this piece? Yeah, well, you know, one of the fun things for me is hearing other people's interpretations. So you say, you know, mentioning a force coming from the face is actually, you know, very interesting. Um, I never considered it that way, but um, I can definitely see it, you know, when, when I'm looking at it. So thank you. I, I really enjoy hearing stuff like that. And this is one of those pieces where it was kind of like a stream of consciousness ink drawing, basically. Mm. And I kind of just, you know, dip the brush in ink and start in one spot and just fill it up until it seems like an appropriate place to stop. And that's why a lot of times when people ask, like, what does a painting or a drawing mean? Um, I, I, I really don't have much to tell them. And it feels like a little bit like a cop-out to say, well, it's whatever you want it to mean, even though that basically is the case. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, yeah, with this one, that's that's really all there was to it. I just, uh, it, it was kind of like a therapeutic, relaxing warm-up. Um, and I often do these kind of pieces for that very reason. And sometimes they uh, become pieces on their own. I think um, that may be more... Um... That may be a, a, a better representation of, of the artist's subconscious sometimes, I think, is, is when you are, as an artist, just creating the piece. Oh, sure. You yeah. don't have a plan, and it just sort of comes out that way. And sometimes, you know, you end up just tossing the piece, or sometimes it ends up being something you want to keep in your collection. But I, I find that sometimes, you know, it can either be just a piece of your own terror or a, a piece of an emotion that you're going through at that time or, or maybe that you're just being reminded of while you're sort of in this process of creating. But um, either yeah. way, I, I think this is a really great piece. And I don't know why, but it kind of speaks to me personally. Maybe oh, that's wow. what I like a little bit. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> and then uh, the last one I wanted to talk about briefly is an actual physical piece that you created, the Sigil of Baphomet altar piece. Mm-hmm. Um, what prompted you to first create this and then um, sell some of it and then stop? 
Um, I started off just needing a really nice altarpiece myself. Uh, we had created this nice altar space, and I just wanted something that reflected that um, classy um, look we were going for. So I experimented, and I, I actually found a round or a circular canvas that I painted a sigil bathment on, and it looked it looked really nice. Um, I, in fact, I, I basically that would be the prototype for the others now, and it, it now hangs over our bed. Nice. Um, and it worked really well. I posted some pictures online on Letters to the Devil, mm-hmm. um, and it got a really strong uh, response. And Warlock Hernandez of the Quintessentials yeah. commissioned a wooden one. So I got permission from the Church of Satan to use the sigil of Baphomet, and I um, started experimenting with different paint, you know, what, what kind of paint would work the best on wood, um, varnishes, uh, how to apply the felt backing and wire hanging and all that kind of stuff. So he was very patient. I was very appreciative of that. And I can't remember if he or I posted photos of the final product, and that's when you know, it really started to snowball and interest really started to grow and it became obvious that this was something kind of special that people would really like for their altars. And um, I started selling them at that point with, um, you know, the Church of Satan's permission to use the the symbol. Mm -hmm. And it was probably maybe a year or so later that I I personally um, created a larger altar space for ourselves and needed a larger plaque. So I developed uh, the 36-inch and started selling it as well. Very cool. And are those still available? They're they're officially retired. But if someone really wants one, I, I can still make one. It's just that it would require a lot of patience on on their behalf because uh, I, the reason I retired them to begin with was just to free up more time to do other things, which I'm currently up to my neck in. <laughs> so it would take a while, but and so I'd need a lot of patience, but it's possible. Um, I, I would like to warn people against buying knockoffs and imitations. I, I've seen a few pop up here and there, and the thing about these is that they're either not the official COS Baphomet, um, it's some like someone else's version or whatever, or it's the official one and they're not paying royalties to the church of Satan for using that trademarked symbol. Mm -hmm. So you want to be careful with that kind of stuff. But, um, like I said, if someone really wants one and they're really patient, you know, they can just send me an email and contact me somehow and, uh, we'll discuss it. Well, I, I am one of those, so <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I can definitely be patient. I will, uh, you know, in, in other avenues, I will contact you and uh, bug you. <laughs> but yeah, I understand that you, you are very busy, so I, I would never uh, expect or demand anything, um, you know, immediate. I, I got to also say, you know, I, I didn't pull any particular photos out here, but I've seen a number of the photos that you, you have posted in social avenues online and i mean it's just beautiful you you have a a style that i think is very original and it's uh very attractive to look at and and you have sort of this skeleton um 
with a lot of your photography. Is there a story behind that skeleton, um, or is it just sort of, you know, that, that those early experiences with with funerals that have, you know, connected you to that? Yeah, uh, probably so. Some of those early fascinations with skeletons. Um, yeah, that's Bianca. We, that's the name we gave her. We um, got her online. We and she's a real human skeleton, uh, female, and. I guess we've had her for a few years now. Um, I just always wanted a real skeleton. Um, you know, you can get really nice quality fake ones that look real, but the nice thing about getting a real, real one is the imperfections that are in it. And so it's great for reference material. It's great for a photography prop, and it just looks nice hanging out in the living room. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's very cool. And, yeah, it probably does come back because, like, skeletons were just my all-time favorite thing to draw. Um, I even had this system. I didn't really understand decomposition when I was a kid, but I kind of figured, okay, a green skeleton is a little fresher than a white skeleton, you know. So, you know, the green skeletons in my drawings were, like, the recently dead, while the white ones were the longer dead. And, yeah, I just just love skeletons, so... Since then, we have a couple of human skulls and, and then Bianca. And, um, you know, we're slowly adding to that collection um, as, as time goes by. So <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, can we maybe transition a little bit to uh, current projects you're working on? Can yeah. you tell me anything about Siren Productions? Sure. Uh, they're an independent uh, production company owned by some dear friends of mine um, based in Florida. And my my involvement with them is more auxiliary in nature. I uh, will provide artwork or graphic design um, as they need it. And, I, in fact, I designed the Siren logo um, seen on their website, which is sirenproductions.net. And I my wife actually took the photos used for the cover, but I put it all together for their uh, Psycho Chicks Anonymous DVD release that comes back to that uh, graphic design uh, stuff that helped out there. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, so they're, they're just uh, doing awesome work, um, and people should definitely give them a uh, check them out. Um, so I've seen some, uh, I don't know, preliminary art pieces for an upcoming graphic novel. I was wondering if you're at liberty to talk about that at all. Sure. Um, uh, Reverend Shiva and her husband have written this wonderful story. Um, it's really in a script format, mm-hmm. um, and I'm doing the art for it. I'm I'm converting it to a comic book script format, and I'm also you know, doing all of the penciling, inking, lettering, um, the works. So um, I don't want to give too much away, but it is... It is uh, grounded in Greek mythology and and the Greek gods are presented very differently from what the general public are used to so it's, it's going to be very interesting I'm very excited about working on this and uh, we hope to have a preview and a website up soon and we'll probably release it as a mini-series first and then at the end of that run uh, release the whole thing in one package as a graphic novel right. um and people can just uh, stay tuned to my like uh, Coffin Rust Facebook page for updates on that. Um, it'll probably be on like the Siren Productions website as well. So 
Um, as, as we yeah, as we get more news about it, we'll definitely be sharing it. We're really excited about it. In fact, I'd like to, I'd love to share more, but you know, we don't right. want to <laughs> give right. too much away because things might change, and certain things haven't been totally decided on yet. So, um, but we're working on it definitely. I had seen you post about it, um, showing some of those those ink um, progress pieces. Yeah. And uh, you had mentioned that you're doing it all yourself, the lettering and everything. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's sort of a lost art nowadays when it comes to, to artwork, um, doing everything yourself versus going digitally? I think so, and that, that's a good question. I, I know a lot of digital artists who are amazing at what they do, and I have nothing but respect for them. But for me personally, I like getting my hands dirty. Mm-hmm. I like feeling the art in my hands. I like being in control, feeling the pen or the crow quill or whatever it might be, the brush in my hand. Um, there's no history palette where you can go back and fix your screw up. Mm-hmm, yeah. so it's a little more challenging in my opinion. Um, and I think, too, for this story, it's just appropriate to give it a very um, hands-on look. Um you know, since it's such an ancient tale, um, it's it, it just wouldn't feel right to use a lot of computer-generated screen tones or lettering or anything like that, in my opinion. So, and since I, I, I just prefer working more traditionally anyway, that's why it's such a perfect fit for me to be working on this story. Um, but yeah, you know, I don't want to offend any of the digital artists out there. I mean, I've seen some stuff that just blows my mind and um, I'm lucky I can figure out how to put the uh, copyright watermark on my images. <laughs> um, so you know, I've got respect for them, but I just I prefer just doing it the old-fashioned way. Very cool. Are there any other uh, projects that you're working on that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, there's a few things. Um, this October, people can expect the 7th Annual Coffin Rust Halloween print. Nice. Um, as usual, they'll be in a limited run of 31 prints that are all signed and numbered, and as always, they'll be absolutely free with free shipping. Wow. Uh, they're always, yeah, they're always a great deal of fun for me. They're a way to reward people for paying attention to my little announcements online and whatnot. Um, in fact, last year, I think they were all claimed up within like a couple of hours of the initial announcement. Whoa. And um, it's also great for marketing reasons and stuff like that, it, yeah, you know, sure. advertising, all that kind of stuff. So it's really a win-win for everybody. Um, and the way I do it is once the first 30 are claimed, I always post number 31 on eBay for biddings just to give people a chance who missed out on that first announcement, uh, you know, give them a chance to get in on it before they're all gone. I also post the original art that I used to create the prints on eBay and these auctions help me, you know, supplement that cost of the free shipping and production. So um, it's a really neat thing. I've been doing it, like I said, this will be the seventh year, and it's just it's gotten more and more popular over time. And it just um, it's just a lot of fun. And I've already started doing the sketches for it. So uh, hopefully by you know the first of October, um, I'll be able to release them. I'll probably make the announcement on my Facebook page. Nice. And also, the band The Quintessentials, um, punk rock from Portland, Mm -hmm. they uh, have a new album coming out this fall that I did the cover painting for. Oh, very cool. About that, yeah. Um, I I believe it's 
going to be released on Halloween, but I'm not totally sure. But people can check out their website, thequintessentials.com, or find them on Facebook for more accurate updates on that. And um, speaking of cover art, I also did the cover for Sonny Bellavance's The Devil's Guitar. Yeah. Um, yeah, and his work's also on Facebook, and I think on CD Baby you can buy a CD. And it's just beautiful classical guitar with diabolical themes, so... It's uh, it should be right up everybody's alley. By actually, I got it on iTunes. Um, his last album and that that album cover art is is really great. It's it's, it's oh, fun you. too. I mean, just looking <laughs> at it and all the different little characters in there and stuff. Oh yeah, it was a lot of fun to paint. He he had an idea of what he wanted, and then he just let me go with it. And yeah, that's the best kind of relationship when, between client and artist is, you know, maybe just give us a little direction and then just let us do our thing and. Um, I was really happy with it. He seemed real happy with it. So uh, it's, it's definitely one of my prouder commissions. That's great. So are you currently taking um, other commissions? Uh, right now with the graphic novel, um, I'm staying pretty busy. I can mm-hmm. uh, do stuff, uh, but it, it boils down to patience. You know, it, it might take me a few months. I need a lot of notice, especially if it's something for like a CD release or a DVD release. I would just need a lot of advance notice so I could really take the time to give it the attention that it deserves. Right. Um, I don't. I don't like rushing anything. And um, so yeah, the more time, the better. And just be patient. Bear with me. Um, and you know, yeah, just give me a holler and um, tell me what you're thinking, and we'll uh, we'll discuss it. So, where would the best place be for them to contact you for commission work? Uh, well, Facebook's pretty popular right now, so that's probably the easiest. My um, Facebook profile is just Daniel Coffinrust Bird, or you can just look up Coffinrust, and um, probably just send me a message through there, or I do have the email script on my uh, website. People can send through there. I'll, um, I'll find it, and you know, if you don't hear from me after a couple of weeks, try to send it again in case it got overlooked or... Um, you know, I just got distracted yeah. and, uh, but yeah, just, you know, give me a holler. All right. Well, I got to tell you, it's been a true pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I'm looking forward to the, the work that you're going to be putting out and I'm going to definitely be paying attention in October <laughs> for those <laughs> Halloween friends. Um, uh, and again, you know, if you ever put anything else out that you want to sort of promote to, um, our community, I would be more than happy to bring you on the show to talk about it and to feature it. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of your work, and um, you know, I, I look forward to uh, what you have coming in the future. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for having me, Adam. It's been a real pleasure, and I wish you well in all the things that you do. Thank you. Hail Satan. Hail Satan. That is going to do it for yet another show. I hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you. Visit the website 9centspodcast.com and send your correspondence to info at 9centspodcast.com. Let me know of any suggestions, critiques, corrections, or comments you might have. You can visit the Undercroft, Facebook, Twitter, or MySpace page for 9 Cents and get updated on weekly topics. I'm also now on Google+, so add me to your circles for updates there. You can listen to the show through Radio Free Satan, or download the show Monday nights via my RSS feed found at 9centspodcast.com 
or subscribe via iTunes by searching Nine Cents. And don't forget to leave a rating or comment. If you'd like to learn more about the Church of Satan, visit churchofsatan.com. If you'd like to meet other Satanists, visit Undercroft at satanet.com. And if you'd like to hear other fine Satanic voices, music, or personalities, visit Radio Free Satan, an online streaming radio station. Before I go, and I know we're running long, but I think it's important to note. If you want to advertise a product on Radio Free Satan, you need to go to RadioFreeSatan.com and contact the administration there. There are a lot of really great podcasts with a lot of fine listeners. So the chance for your promotion is quite large. And we all know that in the world we live in, a consumer society, it's important to get your message out there. Market, market, market. Talk to your audience. The satanic community is very large and very capable of supporting people that they deem worthy. If you think your product's worthy, get over to Radio Free Satan, contact the administration, and you can have your radio spots or live radio comments put on some of these podcasts. I think it's important. It's just another way to support not only your products, but Radio Free Satan as a network. So, once again, thank you for joining me. And as always, I'm your host, Adam Campbell. And until next week, hail Satan.